Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast. For today's episode, we'll be talking about applying to PhDs in the U.S. versus in Europe. For our guests, we have joining us Barbara Plank, who is a professor at ITU, University of Copenhagen, and Gonzalo Correa, an LSPhD student at the University of Lisbon and University of Amsterdam. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, thanks for having me here. Nice meeting you all. And welcome, Gonzalo. Thank you for having me. For the guests for today's episode, we have Jiafeng Wu and myself. We are from the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Welcome, Jiafeng. Thank you. All right, so let's get started by talking about the main difference between PhD programs, or I guess one big difference between PhD programs in Europe and PhD programs in the U.S., which is that European PhD programs are typically shorter than in the U.S. I'm curious to hear your perspective, Gonzalo, on how this difference has affected the work that you do in your PhD, if at all. Maybe we can start by talking about what a typical timeline is for a PhD in Europe and how has that sort of affected when you're thinking about a dissertation topic and what you're working on, yeah, it would be great. Sure. I think it's important to say that the timeline can differ from country to country. So in my case, my, my PhD is, is mainly in Lisbon, in Portugal. And so here the timeline is four years. But I know in other places in Europe, like in the UK, you have uh, just three years, for example. And the timeline is basically in the first year, we have some, some coursework, about five courses that we need to do. Then at some point, there is a proposal to, to a jury. So we don't need to know the topic beforehand. It's just something that uh, naturally comes through the PhD. And then in my case, after four years, this ends up in a, in a thesis that gets presented to a jury. Great. And kind of globally, Barbara, what is your experience? Do you see requirements in the PhD programs differing by program, like requirements in coursework, requirements in teaching? Yes, so I would say Europe is very heterogeneous in terms of uh, requirements even, and as we already heard, you might have different times uh, length of a PhD. So what's, if I you know broadly summarize it, it's typical three or four years, maybe around four years is the most common that you can see, and you know, we heard now in Portugal, but also in uh, in the Netherlands, for instance. But uh, here, for instance, in Denmark, we only have three years, so that's definitely the shortest. Similar in Italy, uh, so that's that's one big difference, right? But in terms of kind of requirements of uh, the coursework that you need to do, and also whether you are getting immediately a contract for the entire period, or there is like a probation period in the beginning, and then like a midterm or initial project checkpoint that also differs really widely. So in a nutshell, it very is much different in in within each country even. So it can not only be different across the countries in Europe, but also within. It might depend on the specifics of the graduate school you are attached to. And it can vary really from no coursework at all to quite structured uh, coursework and topics and a schedule to follow. So we can find quite a lot of varieties, but in a shorter time compared to the US. And since European PhD programs are usually shorter, 
Are there differences in qualifications that applicants are expected to have compared to U.S. programs? For example, is it possible to apply to PhD programs in Europe without a master's? Gonzalo, did you have a master's coming into your PhD program? I I did have a master's, and I'm I'm not sure about the answer to that question. To be honest, I'm not sure if if you need a master's. In my case, I I don't personally know anyone who didn't have a master's when applying to a PhD. But maybe Barbara uh, knows. <laughs> Yeah, I can add to that a bit. Uh, so I also had a master when I uh, started or applied to a PhD back then. And in fact, the big difference to the US is that most people do have a master. So it's almost like, yeah, very, very high percentage, I would say that you need a master. But having said that, there are exceptions. So it's possible in some countries, in some institutions to go for, a, a, say, for instance, three plus one, where you do also an additional master year before you're uh, like in the US, but it's rare. It's the exception rather than the rule in comparison to the US. And one maybe small detail according to, to that to add is it also depends on whether you need to have it formally done already, you know, the, your master diploma at hand at time of applying. And that depends on the university you're applying to. So I would re- recommend really read carefully and if in doubt, uh, ask. Yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of the application, what are the most important parts of the application in Europe? Are they the same as in the U.S., which are typically recommendation letters and statement of purpose? I think in some places in Europe, they also require you to have a more concrete project proposal. Is that common? Barbara, maybe you can talk about this. Right, yeah. There are differences again here. And in fact, as you already hinted, uh, the statement of purpose or the research proposal, that's less common in a lot of the European PhD positions, you can actually apply with uh, even just a CV and a motivation letter, but then it might be a good advice to think about adding something specific to the project that shows that you you are a good match. Uh, definitely, I would recommend that. But I would uh, say that it comes more and more uh, that you also think about a, a research statement of purpose for your PhD. Um, what is though different in at least my experience uh, is uh, recommendation letters. They are really central in the US uh, or required. Um, and in Europe, it's often enough to have references to people that would be able, you could contact in case. So that's often enough or not even necessary even in comparison. Gonzalo, how were you thinking about your application materials when you were applying? Did you also sort of Barbara mentioned that you could kind of apply with just a CV and maybe rec letters. Was this your experience as well? Yeah, that was pretty much my experience. I also uh, just just put a, a contact to the, to my previous supervisor, to my supervisors in the for the masters. And that, that was enough in terms of recommendation letters. And I also did a statement of, of purpose and that was important. And I guess uh, some places might ask you, as was in my case, to show a transcript of the grades of the most relevant coursework that I had in the bachelor's or master's. And also, in my case, uh, my advisor asked me to do a, a coding challenge, for example, uh, that he created for the interviews. So I had to do that as well. Interesting. I have personally never heard of a coding challenge during PhD applications. Is this a, an aberration from the norm or is this quite common? I think it's an aberration from the norm, but, but it was it was nice. <laughs> I see. I second that. It's it sounds very <laughs> specific. 
And one more question about uh, that experience. So do you have any advice for writing a strong statement of purpose? I think this is something that a lot of applicants wonder about. And I'm wondering if it's kind of different in Europe versus the US. I think in my case, my advice is to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And don't be ashamed of uh, just showing it to other people. That helps a lot. And just get feedback on it even from your friends. Everyone, everyone can say something about it. Uh, for me, that's what helped the most, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Barbara, what about from your perspective as a faculty member? What are the things that you look for in statements of purpose when you're reading them? Right. So for what, what, what we look for, I look for a lot is, uh, in fact, that you show that you have some basic at- academic writing skills, even, right? That you can structure how you write uh, instead of even that is perhaps even often more central than, than exactly the, uh, you're not expected to be this excellent researcher right from the beginning, because it's a process that you are, you know, you're learning along the way, but more how you argument, so basic academic writing skills and also showing that though content-wise that you are uh, a good match or so you had done your, you looked into the literature or if you often in Europe, you are actually also applying to a certain PI or supervisor or set of supervisors. So if you can show that your you know your interests match very well with the interests of the supervisor, it's it's about that soft skill side as well, also rather than the having the the complete you know references and everything in place. So show that you have skills to do this research and a good basis. That's kind of what we are looking for. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful. I think tied to, or yeah, related to statements of purpose is. I think a question a lot of people have about how specific their projects will be when they start PhD programs. And I think we touched on this a little bit, saying it's maybe uh, advisor dependent and program dependent to an extent. But generally, and maybe this is impossible to answer generally, but if possible, how does funding work in European PhD programs? Is funding sort of guaranteed or is it typically tied to specific projects? Barbara, what has been most common from what you've seen? Right. So first of all, whether the funding is guaranteed, it's that's so I would like to add there are even unfunded PhD positions. They are not very common, but they exist. And that's something perhaps I would be a bit cautious about. You might do you get the same support? Uh, Maybe it's more open, but do you get the same level of support, supervision and so on in, in those? But they're rare, luckily. Fortunately, most I would say 95% of PhD positions are funded, uh, come with though either a scholarship or a salary. And that's one of the main big differences that you can find throughout Europe. So it's really depending on the, even within country that might differ, or some countries really only offer stipends, some other countries only offer salaries. So there are the main differences, even on the type of uh, extra social benefits you're getting, right, from, from that distinction. And even on top of that, then uh, it depends on where does this funding come from, so is it uh, some dep- department internal funds? That's one, completely funded by the university versus uh, project funded. And that I would say the biggest chunk is in fact the project funded PhD positions uh, where again, it depends on how, how much freedom is uh, in that project and that depends on the funding source versus the department level uh, PhDs. They are more like uh, typically you then come completely with an open proposal 
and uh, submit that. And then there's this matching phase to a supervisor, or maybe you have an idea who's the supervisor, but that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. So they are the most open in terms of and great to get, but very competitive. These are very few positions often in many places because they are shared across many, many groups and or even within bigger departments and so on. But to sum up, the biggest chunk is in fact project-based external funding. And then it depends again on, is it a very open like career project? I got one of those actually two years ago. And it's beautiful because you are very, it's very basic research and we can really, you know, you have the, the project sets, the, the, the big frame, but within those, the PhD projects are still, they can look at what angle do they want to take in the course of the PhD. I think that's a wonderful uh, setup. There's also a project-based PhDs, which are more tied to a more tied to deliverables and promises that are already set out. So the project is more defined. And then the the work might be more, including some parts where you really have to deliver certain things that the the, the project has uh, has been set up. And here, as you see, this is a huge right variety. Again, I would always recommend to look carefully at the ad. And if you are in doubt, maybe you have a PhD working on a similar funded project, you could reach out to get some information, or in general look for information, or ask during the interview. Uh, that's another possibility, but there's huge differences, essentially. Thanks for that thorough answer. That's super helpful. Gonzalo, could you talk a bit about your experience and how funding works for you and how that has affected your research, if at all? Uh, sure thing. As Barbara said, funding in Europe varies a lot across country and across institution. In my case, I am funded by a, by a project, but I have colleagues here at my university that are funded by individual scholarships by the government. And most institutions have uh, students in both situations. In terms of the research, in, in specifically the research freedom, for example, I, I think in general, it tends to be very similar between uh, funding from a project or funding from individual scholarships. I think that depends more on the project itself and on the advisor than on anything else. In my case, I think I'm, I'm fortunate in regards of the, of the project and the advisor I have uh, because they give me a lot of research freedom. Yeah. Maybe just to add, can I add something on that? In fact, it depends on the, on the lab as well, the culture of the lab and the supervisor. And that's, again, something very important to find out what is your preference in, as a PhD student. Are you, you know, are you, would, would you really suffer if it's very set, very concrete already set in stone or stone, but more concrete path for the project? Or are you really actually happy if there is a more step-by-step -step, uh, plan, uh, at least to some extent, versus um, no, you are really like to explore and you want, just want the, the big... Uh, yeah, overall a goal in mind, but you are really more eager to have the, the more academic freedom. So the lab is also a very important factor in that sense. Now let's talk about some main points of considerations when an applicant is considering between programs in the Europe versus the United States. I think one obvious difference is the geography. So in what aspect do you think the geographic proximity to other nearby institutions matters? Maybe Gonzalo, you can talk a bit about this. Yeah, I guess uh, not much during a pandemic, 
<laughs> but <laughs> um, apart from that, I, I think due to the pro proximity, it obviously makes it very easy to travel between institutions and foster collaborations. And I think that's common here in Europe even more now with, uh, with Ellis. In our case, we've had scholars from other institutions uh, visiting to give a talk in our group, for example. And it, it was very easy to set it up and uh, easy to get funding for it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of the culture of doing a PhD, do you think there's any difference in, in Europe versus the United States? I don't know exactly how the culture is in the US, but I know people that have been in both places. And I would say that in, in Europe, we value more like life-work balance and uh, it tends to be a less stressful and less hyper-competitive environment than some uh, top US universities. And uh, as I said before, I think Europe promotes a lot of collaboration through scientific networks where students are co-supervised in different countries, as is the case within the Alice network. And Barbara, do you have anything to add to this from, from your yeah. experience? Yeah, I think in fact, uh, one of the nice, nice points in Europe is that there is more trying to collaborate and trying actually to build these networks, right? Like the Alice network is really an initiative to bring researchers and labs in Europe closer to each other. And that's something which is actually rather new. We are actually growing closer together. And that's really nice to see. According to the local proximity, I think uh, it depends on who the perspective, right? Sometimes people say, okay, going to the other side of Denmark is far, but for others, that's kind of very short distance. But uh, I, would, I would say that, in fact, the local proximity is maybe... Uh, not so. It's often the lab culture as well, which is more important than being locally. Of course, if you are in the, even the best is being in the same building and attending the talks and so on and reading groups from other labs, but it, it might be equally, whether you are on the other side of the city or in another country nowadays, it matters less, I would say, than compared to, yeah, years ago. That makes sense. And, and Barbara, when PhD students finish their programs, are there any differences in skills that they're expected to have compared to the US? I would say no, right? Uh, I would say don't be worried because there might be this worry. Oh, it's only three or four years, maybe five years, like in Sweden. I get not such a good education out, right? You might, what, might think originally, but I would say oh, it really depends on your own ambition and uh, how you, the research you do and the contributions you have because we have seen, right, just look at our own community. There are really, really great researchers which come from Europe and then go and do a career in the US or vice versa. So this shouldn't be seen as a barrier. It's more like what matches you better, right? And uh, so that's, I think, the question. Are you more in the beginning to go deeper into seeing courses and having more time to see the topic you want to research? Or are you, is it fine if it's shorter, but then... It's a lot up to you, actually, what you make out of it as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And after, after a student graduates, is it harder to get a post-PhD position in the US if you get a PhD from Europe or vice versa? I know people in both cases, people that did a PhD in Europe and are now working or doing a postdoc in the US. And also people that did their PhD in the US and are now work, working in Europe. So I, I think there's no problem with that at all. Yeah, I, I 
I think so as well. Yeah, I think so as well that, you know, this is not a problem. Maybe one thing that can happen and what perhaps helps in order to, there is kind of tendency that if you're doing your PhD in, in the US versus Europe, you're kind of more focused in that research community, right? And that might be a challenge afterwards. How do you actually cross to the other? So perhaps even just as we have so many ways to to connect already now or at conferences, just break out. Why don't you look and, uh, for a lab that you have no idea of and just connect them or see what they are doing to, to perhaps earlier make this bridge across the ocean, so to say. It's, it's helpful to maybe, you know, do a research internship uh, across or something or start a collaboration. Uh, so just to maybe in a nutshell, my message is the network is the important part and don't confine it only to the continent you're in, but reach out more globally and there. Barbara, do you have any tips for people on how to build such a network? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a very good question. So in general, if you can, maybe try to do a collaboration besides your main supervision topic that you're, you're trying to find a collaborator outside as well. But another thing is also, at, yeah, I hope really we can go back to real conferences and, you know, enjoy that network. That's actually the, one of the main goals as well, right? You're disseminating your, your work, but also building connections and, and uh, get to know people, join, join groups that go for dinner or something or groups who are at a coffee. So try to leverage that. Now it's harder, of course, but you can also, you know, uh, join, there's a lot of mentoring groups uh, happening now that you could also join to connect to researchers and labs or uh, yeah get in touch with people and gonzalo in terms of the application timeline do you know if it is the same in europe versus the U the us uh, for example in the us typically the application window is at the end of a year and the decision typically comes out in January to to April, and then the program starts in the fall. Is that the case in Europe as well? Yes, I think that's something that happens in Europe as well. Uh, for example, if you apply through the Alice network, that's what will happen there. In my case specifically, but what I was going to say is that there are other things that can happen. It's not only that option. So in my case specifically, I applied, I think, in the beginning of the year and did the interviews and sent my recommendation letters and ended up started working before summer, even though the program only officially starts in the fall. Because my project, my funding is project specific, that could happen. But of course, if you're tied to other things, it may happen in a different way and more, maybe more similar to what happens in the US. It depends on the position, basically. All right, so let's talk about this Ellis PhD program. It's come up a few times in this conversation. Gonzalo, you are, as you mentioned, in this PhD program. Can you give us an overview of what Ellis is? Sure thing. Ellis is the PhD program of Ellis is a meta program on top of existing graduate programs. And the objective of it is to connect European labs and foster European collaboration. And during the Alice PhD program, there's a, an expected part of the program that you will do an exchange period in another university besides your main university of choice. 
and that exchange is part of the program and facilitated through the program. There's funding for you to travel and such. Yeah, uh, that's basically it. It aims to support uh, young researchers in machine learning. And I know that the coordinators wanted to become the, the number one program uh, in machine learning. And currently, uh, I know that it fosters collaboration between 70 institutions and companies in Europe. Yeah, that's great. Barbara, do you interact with the LS Beach or LS program, LS PhD program at all? And if so, in what capacity? Right. So yeah, first, great summary, uh, Gonzalo, of, of the program. It's a meta program. This is a great way to put it. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm also affiliated faculty to the LS program. So there's essentially a set of uh, LS fellows and scholars and also members around Europe, so researchers in machine learning in different applications. So there is essentially a set of programs. There's a dedicated ELIS NLP uh, program as well, which has uh, been established uh, a year ago. And um, one of the reasons here, what when I currently, I'm a PhD, uh, ELIS scholar, and that means that uh, I'm also, you know, taking part in these networks and there's been two uh, Alice workshops and there's this idea that, okay, we are creating this network where we exchange as, you know, have regular meetings, but also these uh, PhD programs with co-supervision in, uh, in both sides, essentially. And I currently just got an Alice PhD student who started like a few days ago. So I'm pretty new to this. Uh, that was though not going through the original call last year because that was funded by the Alice unit in Amsterdam. So we have these Alice units in Amsterdam and Copenhagen and various other places around Europe. But they can also chip in funding locally and then that might go like a project funded PhD and you're still connected to the network. But in future, it's really the idea that you apply globally to this call. The next one is due in November 15. And so the, it helps to match uh, supervisors and students and really wants to get the best PhD educations out in Europe with this co-supervision structure. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm really thinking this, this you know, makes, uh, is going to be strengthening the educations because you are also expected to go to the other lab at least six months, typically to a year. It avoids some of the bureaucracy if you're really literally uh, enrolled in both sides. So you're typically enrolled in one side, but are visiting PhD to the other side. And uh, that's, I think, a very nice construction also for the supervisors to collaborate more and strengthen research. And yeah, I said, I hope this is really going to fly and uh, create great PhD programs. If I might add something. But this program is not only for PhDs, but also for postdocs. So if, if anyone listening that is doing their PhD and looking for a postdoc, they can also apply for a postdoc. Yeah, good point. And that's new this year. That wasn't the case last year, I think, if I'm not completely mistaken. But yeah, that's the idea. It sounds like a really cool, fast-changing program. Gonzalo, could you talk a little bit about the application process? So I think you mentioned earlier submitting a CV and a statement of purpose and doing this coding challenge. Was that part of the Ellis application or was that something separate? And in general, what does it look like to apply to Ellis? Yeah, that was something separate because I started my PhD only in Lisbon and only last year 
did I apply to, to be an Alice? Because to be an Alice student, you have two ways to do that. You can go through nomination, which is what I did. And I showed my, my work, basically what papers, papers that I published, what supervisors I have, and what would be the ex, what was the exchange that I, that I did, in this case, Amsterdam. And so I proposed to be an LE student and, and LE is accepted. And the main option is through central recruiting. This wasn't my case, but I kind of know how it, how it works. It's once a year for prospective students that want to start a PhD. So this is not for people that are already in the PhD. Uh, and yeah, they need to, they need to apply with a, with a motivation letter and their resume. And there's a central portal for that where they can do that. And they can list preferences for topics and advisors. Do you have any advice for that Ellis specific part of the application? We might have listeners who are thinking they want to apply. And yeah, do you have any advice for maybe how to tackle that motivation piece? I think my advice is similar to uh, what Barbara said earlier uh, in regards to seeing what, what your perspective um, advisors research on and see what kind of things they do and basically say that in your motivation and uh, so that they can see that your interests are similar to theirs. That makes sense. I'm also curious about if there's any Ellis-specific programming. Sounds like collaboration and having these study at another university periods is um, central to Ellis. Are there any other like Ellis conferences or talks or something like that that make the program unique? Barbara, as a scholar, it would be great to hear your perspective on this. Yes, that, uh, yeah, there are, in fact, and that's the, one of the contributions because, for instance, these Alice workshops uh, that are specific now to the programs, like NLP workshops, but each of the programs have their own. They organize these more small-scale conferences, you could even say, or even maybe a workshop. And that's uh, really a, a small, safe environment, you could say, where you can exchange your research. So they typically have, like, invited speakers, but then there is also a session where students present their ongoing work and can get feedback of the, all of the peers in this network. And there's also breakout sessions where everyone is invited to join, you know, and we discuss what are big, big issues right now, big questions, how can we move those forward? How can we establish more collaborations? Yeah, I, I really recommend it from that side also that you get these additional workshops, but Overall, it's really trying to make uh, this network and uh, like a, a bigger safety net also around the PhD in a way, right? To allow uh, this course of provision and so on. So, yeah, thank you. And related to this, going back to, I guess, like our discussion about supervisors and potentially co-supervision situations, what does, like, when do you find out in the application process who your supervisor will be? So I guess, Barbara, when did you the reverse, when did you find out that you were going to be taking on this student? Is that mid-application process or is it kind of once a student has been accepted to this program? That let me actually see. No, there is, a, there is in, the, in the middle of the program, there's an advisor matching phase, essentially, where they try to put the students with, with the, it's roughly in the middle. So now if I just look at the upcoming call, applications will be due on November 15th, 
And there is like then, uh, like they will be screened by a pool of researchers and even their labs essentially. And from there it can, goes further. And at some point there is in the middle of a matching phase. Uh, but it's, not, it's kind of a targeted at, okay, we want the best students and then we want to find the best matches for the labs and co-supervisors. So the co-supervisor, for instance, comes in pretty late. So it's almost decided, okay, this, this is a top PhD candidate. And now it doesn't need to be defined a priori that it's going to work in that constellation. But this is flexible and being matched. But uh, maybe one thing to note is the process overall, like uh, you, it takes some time as well. So it will, you will hear in spring, essentially, if it, if it worked out. And yeah, it's, but at least there is this matching phase to make sure that it's the best setup for, for the PhD, in fact, to aim at this number one uh, machine learning based uh, related PhD in Europe. Gonzalo, in your case, did you have, it sounds like you already had your co-supervisors because you did this exchange and is, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, I already I already had my exchange and then uh, I asked for, for that nomination. It was just a collaboration that came through during my PhD uh, due to, well, to uh, the collaboration that happens naturally in conferences and such. And I, I was fortunate for that. Maybe one point in addition, for those who are interested in applying, this Alice program is really, really new, right? So essentially, as, as we hear now, Gonzalo has been, he applied to be part of it, but then now it's going to be moving towards being the central application process. But there are very few who actually started already in this constellation. So this, the PhD I'm co-supervising with Raquel Fernandez at Amsterdam, he's essentially also like in a middle ground. So he applied locally to Amsterdam uh, and we got this funding. And in that way, because the funding came from Amsterdam unit, Alice, Alice unit in Amsterdam, that's how he was associated to this. But like, that's why we see a lot of, perhaps if you talk to an Alice PhD now, it, it is really different how they went into the program in the long run. This is going to be established and uh, perhaps even changing slightly over the time. Uh, we, we need to figure that out, essentially, how to do it the best way. So if, if a listener is interested in this program, should they apply to the Ellis program through the central application process in addition to individual labs? Or is there some sort of restriction there? What would you recommend, Gonzalo? I think I would recommend applying through the central recruiting at Ellis and then Basically, only people, only advisors that have open positions available will put their name there. So if you apply through the central recruiting, then you are matched to an advisor that has an open position. And well, if, if they have the open position, they probably have funding, uh, right? Uh, and so I think that's the best option. Cool. I think one more question about this program is looking on the website, it looks like there are two tracks, the academic track and the industry track. What does this mean for applicants? Can a PhD applicant choose between these? And if so, how should they choose? Barbara, do you have any advice for this question? This is actually now, honestly, something completely new uh, where I don't have much input uh, yet. So as I said before, uh, this is going to be constructed. So I don't know, honestly, much about that, the, that choice, to be honest. Uh, maybe I can 
I can say that I know that there's basically only one difference is on the secondary advisor, which uh, will be uh, uh, someone that is in the industry. Mm, okay. Everything else, it's, it's quite the same. It's just that you have access to those six months in a company and so you can spend some time in the company. So if you wanted to do an internship, for example, during your PhD, that's already uh, in the program itself, kind of. So that's nice if you go through that track. I know that at least 50% of the time you need to be in the academic institution, in your primary institution. And it's the same as in the academic track where it's a minimum of six months in the other institution. In this case, it's in the, in the industry. But you have access to the exactly same activities. The workshops, the, before we didn't mention, but there's also a, a student symposium for every year where students in the Alice Network can meet, uh, which is also nice. It just happened in September. Got it. Yeah. This sounds like a really neat program. Thank you for telling us about it. I think that about wraps up what we were planning on discussing. Barbara or Gonzalo, do you, either of you have anything to add that listeners should know when they're considering this choice between PhDs in Europe and the U.S.? Yeah, to wrap up, maybe my, my, main conclu- my main suggestion is really think about what are your preferences, your working style, your, or where are, your, where are the, the supervisors or the research labs that you are really yeah, excited about the research so that, that you find that match is kind of the key over other aspects, I would, I would say, personally. And maybe one, one other suggestion is we talked about Alice and that's great and coming up, but perhaps this is all in the building. So remember that there are also PhD positions still coming out regularly, calls that you can apply to because funding might become available at different moments. So maybe that's another point to keep in mind. Uh, there is not just this one chance in the fall to apply. That's the majority, but keep an eye open and reach out even to potential uh, people you're interested in, whether they are going to have a position open. We are a very friendly community, and that's why you're always welcome to contact even people you're interested in. But yeah, that's it. And uh, thanks a lot for having me here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. I think the listeners will find this helpful. Thanks a lot.